Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. This week, we're discussing an essay by Emily Best, the founder of Seed and Spark, a crowdfunding site for films. Then we interview writer-director Emma Forrest about her new film, Untogether, which was just released in select theaters on February 8th. Stay tuned. This week on Women in Film in the News, we're digging into the archives a bit and discussing an essay written by Emily Best, the founder of Seed and Spark, a crowdfunding platform. Um, we found this article, kind of made the rounds again on Twitter this week, and we thought it was an interesting piece to discuss and had a lot of parallels to film funding and just creating in general. First off, yeah, a little bit about Emily Best. Yeah, the origin of this story is kind of in 2011, Emily Best, who was a film producer and an actress, needed $20,000 to finish financing her film. And she was inspired by the wedding registry model. So she and her team created a simple website that listed the items they needed, like cameras and equipment to finish the film. And it included a PayPal to accept those donations. And Seed and Spark was basically born from that right the idea of it <laughs> yes, was exactly and then she went on to try and find funding for seed and spark itself yes and that is basically what she outlines in this really interesting and uh, very detailed article which i very much appreciated also she has a great dry wit which i was a huge <laughs> fan of um, but she basically talks about all the different steps of finding the funding and how she was getting a lot of meetings with these people uh, mm -hmm. investors angel investors I'm throwing out these words here. I don't know if I know them all, but they were in the article. <laughs> um, and she's talking about meeting with them and just basically getting so many no's. Right. And over it, and over. Yes. And it wasn't even necessarily the sting of the rejection. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, she wants to get a yes, but she's right. like, what is not working here? Well, and a lot of people said, we think you have a good idea. We're interested. But when you have blank or this or that or traction, come mm -hmm. back to us. Yes, so traction was, was mentioned traction a lot. Traction was mentioned a lot. Um, but it was still a no. Totally. Even a lot of female oriented investment mm -hmm. groups said that too right um until she met with this one investor arlen hamilton who basically what she was doing at backstage capital her investment group i'm assuming mm -hmm. was also trying to look at um how to disrupt certain industries and uh make work that was maybe not you know, of the norm or mm -hmm. traditional. Right. Because exactly. Seed and Spark um, aims to especially help female, LBGTQ, mm -hmm. um, minority filmmakers to bring their works to life. Right. And this, this reminded us of our experiences at Sundance, just hearing about finance. Yes. We learned a lot about fi financing at Sundance. Mm -hmm. And yeah. We heard that over and over from, you know, these directors that were speaking at the Q&As that the way that they got their films financed was by finding like-minded people whose values aligned with the mission of the film and the story that they were telling. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's a huge question just in creating in general. It's, you know, you're told a lot, hey, find your tribe, find your people, find mm -hmm. your community. Um, how does that translate, I guess, into finding funding to make right. those things exactly. happen? And also Emily talks a lot about in her essay, just the intentionality of like seeking the people that actually would mm -hmm. have the same values that she did 
to invest in her vision and her project. Right. And I think this um, specifically is really interesting just going along with what you're saying because this crowdfunding platform gives fans and supporters a way to literally put their money where their mouth is by backing projects that they believe in and stories that they want to see told by diverse people in front of and behind the camera. So it's really giving power to these independent filmmakers and independent backers or fans. Yeah, and we're not sponsored by Seed and Spark. No. We, do, we do want to discuss this. But basically, fans have contributed over $17 million to help creators make 1,331 new movies and shows, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, a lot of the times each week when we talk about one film in the news, it's like, what are you doing or mm-hmm. what can we do to try to further more female filmmakers' works. Right. And I think this is a great way of like, okay, yeah, we're not Nicole Kidman, <laughs> you know, making our challenge yeah, to work with but female how directors. Can we support? Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that this is um, just another example of a woman who she's an actress and a filmmaker and she saw this problem um this obstacle of getting films financed by under or underrepresented people getting their films financed and she really took initiative to create something that supports and helps further the careers of not just herself but of so many others and i think that's pretty incredible completely and she's doing this all basically part of the funding rounds that she talks about in the in the essay she's doing while pregnant right and then she continues talking about like they're now happening while she's like breastfeeding and raising her child and which is just also incredible and Mm -hmm. also shows that like yeah women can do anything women are doing it yeah (laughs) they can just for Valentine's Day, take extra savings off when you purchase a Wolfpack wine membership from our favorite wine store, Vinovore. Vinovore sells wines by female winemakers. Membership includes delicious women-made bottles of wine every month, nifty tasting notes with your bottles and pairing suggestions, as well as 10% off all in-store purchases. Use code VVLOVE5OFF for 5% off a three-month prepay membership. That's VVLOVE5OFF. Now, here's our interview with Emma Forrest. Emma wrote and directed the film Untogether, which premiered at the 2018 Tribeca Film Festival. The film stars real-life sisters Jemima and Lola Kirk, who play sisters in the film, in addition to Ben Mendelsohn and Jamie Dornan. The film is now playing in select theaters in major cities. Enjoy! Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me or being had or yeah, <laughs> thank <right>. you yeah. <laughs> so what was the genesis for your film Untogether and what are you examining in the film the genesis of the f- well look everything that I've written that I actually think has value I wrote really fast um, your voice in my head was written pretty quickly I have a new book coming out that was written in five weeks and this was a really quick write because I had met the person who would become my husband and I when I met him I knew that it was just gonna be a one-night stand and then it wasn't and I was so confused and I was trying to make sense of it um I think so much of what I write is just to trying to make something not scary that's the gift of being a writer is you can find an alternate narrative that makes things feel safer so that's where it came from Yeah, going off of that, a lot of your work is very autobiographical, including this film. Do you write, quote unquote, what you know, or is it kind of to like work through whatever you're experiencing? I I mean, what was great about, obviously, I've written a straight memoir before, um, 
and that was a very strange experience when that was being developed as a film because I would literally sit there in meetings where executive would say we're really concerned that she's not likable enough and I was like me me okay right I'll address that in the notes but with Untogether what I loved was that there were, were massive parts of me but I got to move them around almost like a Ouija board between characters um, so that there were things that happened to me that if I gave them to Ben's character, how would that character move forward with that? So it was a really nice way to take experience and strain it through my imagination. Yeah. That's really interesting. I never really thought about like having what you know, but then si- siphoning it through another character. No, I swapped our neuroses, basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a scene in the film where Ben and Jemima are on a park bench and he's saying to her things that I've said to him. That like It drove him crazy forever and ever. That he would say, you're so judgmental. And in the movie, I made him say that to her and I think it not only is creatively enriching but it definitely like you know we're in America we're constantly on a search for closure it's very very helpful to just take your words and put them in someone else's mouth did you have conversations with him about that you were like these were literally I mean we would laugh about (laughs) it yeah we would laugh about it um And the brilliant thing is that before we ever started dating, he had read my book and I had seen his film. I'd seen Animal Kingdom. He had read Your Voice in My Head. So I think when you start in a place of creative admiration, it means that when the love part is over, like there's still such a grudging respect, you can't help it because he thinks I'm talented and I think he's talented. You know, it's a real savior, actually. The characters in the film all have this sense of self-awareness around what they're struggling with, whether it's mental illness or addiction. And it was really refreshing to see these characters genuinely work through those things in that way. Could you talk about your decision to show these parts of the characters' journeys? Yeah, this isn't going to be the answer you're expecting. Um, It all comes from Cat Stevens. Um, So my first crush, one of my very first crushes was Cat Stevens. You can go away and Google the inside image of Teaser and the Firecat. That was like my dream man. And so I became very early on fascinated with the Cat Stevens origin myth, which is about he was a, a, a drug addict and a sex addict. And one day he was in the ocean in Malibu and he was drowning. And he made a deal with God, you know, to invoke Kate Bush. He made a deal with God um, that if he would save his life, he would devote the rest of his life to him. And he survived and came out of the water. And as we know, ended up converting to Islam and devoting the rest of his life to that. But I was always fascinated by the way he fell in and out of music addiction religion um and how if you're if you have a great gift for one you probably can slip into the other um so I've just always been absolutely fascinated by him and truthfully like that he was very present in my mind when I was working on on this so you based Jemima Kirk's character on yourself well yes I mean yes she definitely has aspects of me but as I say 
Ben has as many aspects. You know, Lola's character has some. I'm very close with my sister, so also the sisters have parts of both of us swapped around. I mean, probably the most straight-up autobiographical part about Jemima's character in terms of me is just how I dressed her, which some of the... Quite a lot of the reviews have either you know, mentioned it or mentioned it quite huffily. Like, what does it mean? What does it mean? You know, why? That she's dressed all 50s and, you know, I know what it meant for me when I was struggling with transitioning to womanhood. I didn't feel grown up enough and I ended up really honing in on women who'd made successful, very public successful transitions from child star to adult star and that was Elizabeth Taylor and Natalie Wood. Um, and that's how they dressed and that's how I always dressed was the pencil skirt and the sweater and all of that and it's a kind of armour and it's a kind of superhero costume which is something Jemima says in the movie but I love clothes, I love fashion, I love costume design Um, and I work very closely with Cameron Lennox who was the costume designer and we talked about things like... um, let's put her in a lot of mohair in a lot of angora because she can't admit how much she wants to be touched and petted like a cat you know and uh so the 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 most purely autobiographical aspect of Jemima's character is just the clothes so you mentioned that you have a sister and the film really centers around these sisters and their bond and we were just wondering what inspired that part of the story and if you could talk about your decision to cast real sisters to play these sisters I mean my I I've been trying to my sister's spotlight since literally since the day she was born the day she was born that should have been her day I showed up in the hospital wearing a, a Superman outfit and all the nurses were looking at me and fussing over me and she didn't get attention the day she was born and that really followed us through our lives until uh, and we didn't get along for you know through the teenage years and then as soon as I moved to America and we put an ocean between us from then on, whenever we saw each other, we were just in love. Like, we just, it, 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 I can't believe we had to put an ocean between us to make sense of each other, but we did. Um, and she's now just, hands down, my favorite person on the planet. She's just so funny. She's a film editor. Um, she's, she's hilarious and um, brilliant and kind and the absolute best and it's that funny moment when you realize I'd choose you even if I wasn't related to you like I really dig you I don't just love you but I get something from you and you get to that place with Jemima and Lola in the movie and in real life I can't speak for them I don't know if they're there like I know that they have a really complex relationship and that they love each other um, and they find each other hard to navigate um, and I think I was something of a translator for them because I have a part of me that's very similar to Jemima Jemima's real personality and another part that's very similar to Lola's I mean Jemima's the sort of person who she's selfish and she's generous at the same time and I'm very very similar you know she'll come and stay with you and not do any washing up but the day she leaves she'll take the jewelry off her body and hand it to you and say I want you to have this like I I get it like she is a a a more extreme version of me kind of in every way one of the weirdest things um 
to figure out an answer to was everyone who knows me who saw the movie went she looks so much like you and I didn't know what to say because I think she's so beautiful but I can see that she looks like me so I think I chose the most extraordinarily attractive version of myself which I think any of us would do if we could (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) and honestly Christopher Nolan gives every lead character his haircut so like what's the big deal there you go did you know that you wanted them initially yeah I I knew I wanted real sisters plain sisters and I just think they're great I think they're so good and they have it's Rachel Vice theory which is you need the face that you would follow anywhere that you'll follow when they're in every frame of the movie that you'll follow when the character isn't likable and that's different from just straight up beauty which obviously she is and which Jemima is but there's a complexity and um, a soulfulness to, to those faces yeah we noticed that in the film they were shot so beautifully and and just like really captured their essence with the, the shots you. and yeah yeah autumn i don't know if you've ever interviewed autumn Durald, the dp but she is just a genius and um it's such a low budget film she made it look more expensive than it really is um she is able to translate emotion into technical know-how or vice versa like she's just I knew that it was my first film Um, I wanted to be able to work closely with the actors and I needed a lieutenant a general who just had such tech savvy that I could get on with my actors and say to her like what uh, landscape is going to help us evoke melancholy in this you know and she can just tell you Um, so she is absolute godsend and 50% of whatever you feel I achieved in the film is is autumn yeah how did you collaborate with her like how did you communicate what you wanted to see visually well so the other person autumn and I certainly want to work together again and the other person she has worked with and is a key collaborator with is um Gia Coppola and because autumn shot Palo Alto and autumn says to me her job is so much easier working with directors and it happens to be women maybe women are this way who have very strong sense of personal style which comes back to what I was saying about the costumes and the meaning there um but I know what she means that sometimes like you'll meet a director or go to that house or something it looks like everything came from Ikea there's nothing wrong with some things coming from Ikea but everything from Ikea and like you know the whole outfit came from Old Navy and that's not to do with it's just to do with price or anything it's to do with uh, uniformity that I think um, certainly Gia doesn't have and I don't have and um, that's something Autumn uh, finds helps her do her job yeah that's an interesting idea of like your artistic sensibility really kind of going through well actually on your sleeve yeah like the actual sleeve (laughs) right just having this aesthetic that is it really influences what you're doing creatively yeah makes sense um we read and correct us if we're wrong that you started writing your script based on the one night stand that turned into the relationship that turned into the marriage with uh ben mendelson and then you cast him in the film which was a bold move um, can you talk about that choice and, and why you want him to be in the film and, and 
yeah, just we were so intrigued by that. Well, it was a Valentine because as soon as I wrote it, which wasn't long after I met him, I showed it to him. I was like, this is for you. And so it was always for him. Um, would have actually been a bigger deal for him not to be in it than for him to be in it because it was his. And there was a brief moment. Um, there was probably a week when we had had such a massive fight towards the very end that he was like, no, forget it. I can't. Nope. I can't. I can't do it. And um, I did probably the Jedi mind trick that I'll never better, which was like, I completely understand and I'm going to offer it to Russell Crowe. And <laughs> he just went, you can't, no, you can't do that. I'm doing it. I'm <laughs> um, so... <laughs> So that's how he stayed in, um, ultimately. And we're so glad he did because I love that he gets to show this guileless, sweet, puppy doggish, kind of joyful, silly, Iggy Pop side of himself that I know so well and that we don't get to see on screen with him ever. Yeah. Yeah, it was such a fun contrast to seeing his character like on Bloodline. Yeah. 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 Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so... The film premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. Congrats. Thank you. Can you tell us about your festival experience and what the reception to the film was there? I, yeah, I'll give you the honest answer. I was, it was a a year, last year, I was there with a few really amazing female writer-directors, two of whom I became really close with. One is Eva Vives, who directed all about Nina, if you saw that with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, and the other um, is Nia DaCosta, who has a movie about to open called Little Woods with Tessa Thompson um, and Lily James. Uh, and none of us had gotten into Sundance. And everyone around us was kind of astonished. Like, they all felt that these were Sundance movies. And then... We tried with a little assistance from some of the Time's Up ladies to just, not sour grapes, but genuine curiosity about, well, okay, how many female programmers were part of choosing that year's Sundance? Um, Because we knew, for example, that both Eva and Nia had gone through the Sundance Director's Lab and that none of the women who went through the Director's Lab got in that year, but that a bunch of the men did so they didn't give an answer that year about how many women were actually programming but this year they did and this year a lot of women got in um so I don't know like we had yeah it was it it was beautiful to be at Tribeca where they really genuinely embraced our films truly loved them and where we got to get to know each other and keep supporting each other and we're all really really different but like we will be the queens of even if it's just on twitter on instagram like retweeting each other's openings and all of that like they're great great ladies yeah uh so you started out as a writer yeah what was the call to express yourself more visually as a filmmaker with this first film that you uh i'm very visual and i always have been um i grew up living really near to the Tate Gallery in London and so I would often go there after school and there were fairly disparate um, 
very strong female influences. In your voice in my head, I write a lot about the painting that hangs in the Tate of Ophelia Drowning, but which is by um, John Everett Millay. And that's, um, you know, beautiful pre-Raphaelite painting of Ophelia Drowning, uh, which is very sort of Florence Welch, like it's that aesthetic. Um, and at the same time, uh, Tracy Emin was becoming a star and at a really pivotal age, I think, I want to say 12 or 13, I went to the Tate and saw her seminal show where you could go inside this tent she had made and it was a piece called Everyone I've Ever Slept With. And when you went inside the tent, you looked up and she had sewn the names like in beautiful embroidery all over the tent of everyone she'd ever slept with. And it, it, it really stayed with me. Um, and I think it's a massive influence on the work I do and especially on Untogether. Um, I think if I didn't have a strong personal style and aesthetic, uh, I wouldn't have had the chutzpah to think I could direct. I mean, certainly there are really great writers who make uh, the leap to direct, not the leap to direct, because that sounds like being a director is better than being a writer, which it's not, but the transition to writer-director. And they don't have a visual sense. And it's just bizarre to me that they want to do, like, if you don't care about how things look, just keep being a great writer you know but I do care about how things look and I do um, my sister and my mom and me to some extent but especially them have synesthesia which is a crossing of the senses um, so that like with my I'm trying to remember exactly whose is what I know that like my mom sees numbers as colors and my sister like music and and words and I have a touch of that. Um, and that is, I think, part of the cinematic language, actually, um, is that whenever I listen to music, I see, I can see the images that should be with it. Um, so I don't know, maybe I was stupidly confident, but I was stupidly confident. What was the most unexpected or challenging part of directing this film? I was very aware of the times most of the time that Lola and Jemima were having a really hard time with each other there were times that they weren't talking to each other at all and there were times that Ben and I weren't talking to each other apart from yelling action um the the day I most wish I could change you know with hindsight and this this is real like first time director stuff is I was hysterical about not going over budget because I knew that as a first time director that will count as a black mark against you when you try to get the next thing made so I never went over budget and one day um, in the park that scene with Ben on the bench he wanted another take and we honestly we rarely did more than three takes of any scene because we were just moving so fast and it was a 20 day shoot he wanted another take the line producer said that we would go into meal penalties um, if we did another take. And I didn't know how much meal penalties cost, and I didn't ask anyone. I just assumed the worst. I was like, that's going to be $30,000. You know, we can't do that. And actually, it, it turned out it would have been $600. Would I pay $600 not to piss Ben Mendelssohn off? 
Yes. Because <laughs> he then would not speak for three days. Um, that is the day I wish I could could have changed because, oh, I think he even sort of shouted at me, um, I'll show you over time. And I was like, that is such an existential threat. Like, what does that even mean? And then he went into his trailer and didn't come out. And I was like, oh, my God, he's showing me over time. It totally worked. So, yeah, that's the day I wish I could change. Could you talk a little bit about your dual citizenship and if that has informed your art in any ways? So, yeah, I'm half English, half American. My mom's a New Yorker and my dad's English. Um, I think... You know, there's the, the European movies that I grew up loving, like Betty Blue um, and The Lovers on the Bridge, uh, Les Amants du Pont Neuf. Uh, I love Claire Denis. But then, you know, to me, like one of the all-time great American writer-directors is Nicole Holofcener, and that's such a American sensibility. Um, so when I put together the mood board for this movie when I was trying to get the financing, there were definitely, like, you know, love scenes from Betty Blue, but I knew that it would have that smart Alec dialogue. Um, I knew by the same token that I didn't want a talky-talky film that didn't look good. Um, So... I don't know what I achieved, but I know that that's what I meant to blend was the European visuals with the proper New York um, smart Alec. Cool. Well, we end every interview with our rapid response segment called okay. 321 Action. Oh God. Yeah. I should have prepped for this. Uh, it's all good. Three, your favorite or most influential film that is coming to mind right now? I mean, I watched my Holland Drive probably once a year because I'm a, a Jungian dream theorist freak um, and I like to interpret it differently every time I watch it. Uh, yeah, and I like to be frightened by the old people who shrink themselves. I really love that film. <laughs> Two, dream person you would like to work with? I would love to work with Army Hammer and I'd love to work with Lakeith Stanfield. So when I got to see them in one movie, in Sorry to Bother You, you know, that's not quite as good as getting to work with them, but at least I got to view them together. <laughs> one, best advice you've ever received? Joe Wright, the director, uh, who I had done a little dialogue polish for him on the movie Hannah, he said to me ahead of shooting this film, he said, you have to go in knowing that you're going to have to make decisions and accepting that they may not be the right decisions, just that you have to make decisions. And that was great advice. Action. What are you most looking forward to right now? Learning to lucid dream, learning to remember when I'm inside a dream and to control what happens when I'm in the dream, which is a metaphor for making cinema. That's beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) Unexpected. And where can people follow you and when can they see your film? So Untogether is in select U.S. theaters and on demand and on all the streaming platforms from Friday, February 8th. Uh, And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Girl Interrupter. Or you can follow me or or and you can follow me on Instagram. I'm Addie Prey, which is the character that Tatum O'Neill won the Oscar for when she was 10 in Paper Moon. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. 
You can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos are by Megan Cafferty. This podcast is produced by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell.